Uh, but I'm going to continue our series uh, looking at the lives of Elijah and Elisha, so 1 Kings 19. And so if you're new with us, we've been in a series where we've been looking at these two Old Testament prophets. Uh, a prophet was someone that communicated the Word of God to the people of God, they brought the truth of God's Word, and oftentimes that message was one that confronted the hearts of God, God's people in places where they had, um, they had taken God off the throne of their life, and they have put themselves back on the throne of life. That's what repentance is. And so the prophet was calling to repentance, saying, anywhere in your life where there is the lack of Jesus or the absence of Jesus, repentance is turning back in that place to Jesus. That's what the prophetic word was ultimately always pointing to. And yet, at this point in Israel's history that we've been looking at, most of God's people have abandoned God's Word, and they'd assimilated right into the culture around them. And that meant that there was virtually no distinction between those who had called themselves God's people and then those who had worshiped and bowed down to other gods. There was no distinction at all. It was almost as if God's people were now sharing the same vision for life, the same priorities that the community around them, the, the culture around them was, was embracing. And so they began redefining the good life in these new terms and categories and saying, you know, uh, it's no longer far better to be uh, chosen by God and loved by God and to embrace God's dreams for my life, but I want the world's dreams. I want the culture around me and their horizon. And so uh, what we have in First and Second Kings is this call to remember, this call uh, to, the, to the remnant, to the few faithful followers who are feeling discouraged and beat up and desperate for hope. And there's this call that we've been seeing that, hey, I want you to remember no matter what, no matter the pressure you're feeling, no matter what you're being told, no matter what you're seeing in the culture around you, or all the other gods and worldviews that are being celebrated and lifted up, there is but one true God. And so that's what First and Second Kings is all about. And so this morning we're going to read about the call of Elisha and this transfer of leadership from Elijah the prophet to Elisha, his successor. Elijah was one of the greatest and most accomplished leaders in Israel. And Elisha is this humble successor and embedded in this call and this passing of the baton moment in Israel's history, there's a question for all of us. And that question is, what is your life really all about? What is the purpose and meaning and significance that you attach your life to? Have you embraced the call of God in your own life? Or are you still ultimately trying to find your best life now in this world? And so let's read 1 Kings 19. We're going to see the call of Elisha here in verses 19 through 21. It says, so Elijah went up from there and he found Elisha son of Shaphat. He was plowing with 12 yoke of oxen, and he himself was driving the 12th pair. Elijah went up to him and threw his cloak around him. Elisha then left his oxen and ran after Elijah. Let me kiss my father and mother goodbye, he said, and then I will come with you. Go back, Elijah replied. What have I done to you? So Elijah left him. Elisha left him and went back. He took his yoke of oxen and slaughtered them. He burned the plowing equipment to cook the meat, and he gave it to the people, and they ate. And then he set out to follow Elijah, and he became his servant. 
Next, we're going to read a passage in 2 Kings 2. We're fast-forwarding 18 years. For 18 years, Elisha has become the servant of Elijah. And now, Elijah, you know the famous story, is about to be called up into this chariot of fire. He is going to gloriously ascend and disappear. And at that moment, Elisha assumes the role of lead prophet for Israel. And so this is what we have in 2 Kings 2, how this all happens, 18 years after what we just read in 1 Kings. It says, Elijah took his cloak, he rolled it up, he struck the water with it, the water divided to the right and to the left, and the two of them crossed over on dry ground. And when they had crossed, Elijah said to Elisha, tell me, what can I do for you before I'm taken from you? Let me inherit a double portion of your spirit, Elisha replied. You've asked a difficult thing, Elijah said, yet if you see me when I am taken from you, it will be yours. Otherwise, it will not. And they were walking along and talking together. Suddenly, a chariot of fire and horses of fire appeared and separated the two of them, and Elijah went up to heaven in a whirlwind. Elisha saw this and cried out, my father, my father, the chariots and horsemen of Israel. And then Elisha saw him no more. Then he took hold of his garment, he tore it in two. Elisha then picked up Elijah's cloak that had fallen from him, and he went back and stood on the bank of the Jordan. He tore the cloak that had fallen from Elijah, and he struck the water with it. Where now is the Lord, the God of Elijah, he asked. And when he struck the water, it divided to the right and to the left, and he crossed over. This ends the reading of God's word. Uh, Let's pray together as we dive in this morning. Father, we pray as we come this morning that you would be with your people, that your word and your gospel and your spirit would provide clarity and comfort where we need it most. God, I pray that you would speak powerfully into our hearts this morning. Awaken us again to the call of God. Help us to see where we have set it aside in our lives and been tempted to embrace the world's definition of success and glory. God, may there be repentance in our heart, a turning away again from where Jesus is absent to Jesus himself, the one who has gladly surrendered all so that we might be partakers of the kingdom of God. And so, God, would we have the trajectory of Jesus' life on mission, present in our own, moving and motivating us outward, even in a world that's really difficult right now. So be with us and your people this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Hey, there's a word in your Bible. It's repeated really frequently. It's one of the most repeated commands, and it's simply remember. Did you know that over like 250 times in the Bible, you will see the command, the word, remember or do not forget or remind them of this. And so there's this idea, you can see it here in 2 Peter 1 and in Jude 1, where Peter says, I will always remind you of these things, and listen to this, even though you know them and are firmly established in the truth that you now have. I think what that means is that a lot of times we don't necessarily need to be taught anything new. Instead, what we need is just to have the cold water, right, of God's Word splashed on our face. We, we got to get the wax out of our ears 
so that we can hear and be reminded again of things that we're prone to forget, of things that we are tempted to lose sight of about God, His character, who we are as His people, and what it means for His call to determine our lives. And so that's how I want to frame our morning together. That's how I want to frame our time. There's not going to be a whole lot of new, but I hope that what you hear will be a really clear reminder about some important things that we need to get a hold of as God's people. And the first thing I want you to remember is something that probably a lot of parents in this room would just as soon rather forget, and that's this song from the Disney movie Frozen, Let It Go. Now, I know what you're thinking. Please don't bring that holy terror back into my family's home. Don't give that new life. I don't want anything to do. We've forgotten that song. Don't bring that back. But here's a line from that song, and I think it sets up our time well. It's time to see what I can do to test the limits and break through. No right, no wrong, no rules for me. I'm free. Let it go. Let it go. And so what I want you to remember about that song is that it sort of perfectly captures the spirit of our age right now that we live in. Autonomy, authenticity, individualism, freedom. It's this dominant, secular, Western worldview that if we could somehow put together some words, they would coalesce, that the idea would coalesce around these ideas, autonomy, authenticity, individuality. And so there's this sense in Elsa's song, if you heard it, that she wants her life to matter. She wants it to count. She needs her life to be significant, but it should be divorced from any kind of guiding framework, moral framework, any kind of authority, any kind of God or rules that would sort of constrain her personal sense of self-expression. She wants to be free, but she wants no rules, she wants no right or wrong, and she wants her life to count. This is what author David Brooks calls our general, generational worldview. He calls it the big me, the big me. So in other words, in ancient Israel, they sent up these huge altars to the Baals and to the gods of Babylon. But in our world today, we set up the huge altars to the God of me. And we think, how can I find life apart from the one true God and his mission? I want my life to matter, but is there a way to get it on my own terms. There's a, um, a, a professor of psychology at Notre Dame, and his name is Christian Smith. And Christian Smith wrote a book called Lost in Transition. And in it, he does all these interviews with what he calls emerging adults, people in their 20s and 30s right now in our world trying to ask them, how do you define the good life? What are you living for? What are you trying to find? Where are you trying to find happiness? And, and so he collects this data, but there's this one young person that he interviews that I found was refreshingly honest. Not a believer, but said that they had found a job in a big city where they were making money and it was what they had always longed for. And they had recently broken up with their girlfriend. And it wasn't because they weren't in love anymore. It was because they didn't understand what the point of marriage would be. And so there was this, this boredom and that he was experiencing. And he says this about his generation. And it's fascinating to me. He says, my generation seems to lack any sense of connection to anything larger than our own personal aims and preoccupations. 
We're free to be whatever we want to be and exist outside of traditional roles. And yet this freedom from the age-old moral constraints is accompanied by a weightless feeling that attaches itself to even the most fundamental human decisions. Why bother? Why get married? What are families for? Who gets to, to, to define a family? The problem is my sense of self isn't real. Self is just a necessary illusion that allows us to function in time. It was never meant to save us from death or imbue our lives with meaning and purpose. The self is the root of selfishness, and selfishness is what makes us unhappy. I really appreciate his honesty. He's saying, you know what? I'm stuck. I'm in this place where I have all this freedom. It's what I've really longed longed for. And yet, at the same time, I'm not happy. I don't have any sense of purpose or meaning. And what I realize is the only way to get purpose and meaning is for my life to be connected to a bigger story, to be connected to a mission. But anytime I move toward mission or anytime I move towards sacrifice, it means it's going to constrain my freedom to a degree. And so I feel stuck. I don't know what to do. I feel selfish and meaningless and bored. And so in our passage this morning, I want to introduce you to a totally different paradigm for life. And it's in the life of Elisha. I don't know if you saw this, but Elisha has this autonomy. He actually is a very wealthy person. He gets to do whatever he wants with his time. He has a life of comfort. And yet what he does with it is he trades it all in for a life of poverty. He moves into the service of God. He says, I had all this stuff, and yet I didn't have anything in my life until I had the call of God, until I had the mission of God. And when that came, it meant surrendering all this apparent freedom, but it was a glad surrender. There was joy behind it, and that's when I came alive. And so I want to look at three reminders in the passage this morning And I want to look at what it means to be called by God. First, that we really need it. Second, what is it? What's the reality of this call? And third, where's the power to embrace it? All right, first, the need. Every one of us has a need to be called by God, to find this in our lives. The text tells us in verse 19 that when Elijah found Elisha, there were 12 pairs of oxen. And that Elisha himself was driving the 12th pair. All right, here's what that means. What that means is that Elisha is apparently a very wealthy man. He owns a very significant size piece of land for that day and age. And he's got a lot of firepower to cultivate the land. 24 ox was significant. And he's got a lot of workers out there. And so for him to have the ability to just say, I'm going to burn the plow and I'm going to kill the ox, plus he's driving the 12th pair himself, that meant he was the supervisor. It meant he was in charge. It meant he was the owner of all this stuff. And so what you have here is this wealthy person in Elisha, this young man, and it would have been extremely Um, it would have been extremely possible for him to have security and power to be able to vacation whenever he wants, to buy whatever he wants. Uh, His kids can go to college wherever they want. He has a nice, comfortable life. Would you sign up for that? Would you take that life if it were offered to you? How enticing is that to you as you think about where he's at right now in his life. And now I want you to really think about this because in verse 19, I want you to see what happens. 
In verse 19, Elijah comes out to him out of nowhere, and he puts his cloak around him. And Elisha seems to know exactly what that means. It means, come follow me. I want you to sign up for the life that I'm living. For the cloak to go around him meant that he was going to assume this apprenticeship with Elijah. Now, Elijah's cloak, if you think about it, is symbolic in a lot of ways because Elijah has been on the run from Jezebel for three years in the wilderness in a world where there are no washing machines. And so this cloak is dirty. It's got holes in it. It's been around the block a little bit. It's nasty. And there's this symbolic gesture gesture here to say, you're being called to be a prophet. And that is a call away from comfort, away from worldly security, We probably won't know where we're sleeping tonight. We don't know where our food will come from. We don't know who's going to try to take us out, but you get my cloak. I want you to just imagine that. You have a a life of security and comfort and everything that you want and need. And here's this offer to move into a life of danger and the unknown and poverty. Do you think you would pass What would you choose to do with that? Look at what Elisha does in verse 20. Elisha left his oxen and he ran after Elijah. Let me kiss my father and mother goodbye, he said, and then I will come with you. So Elisha left him and went back. He took his yoke of oxen and slaughtered them. And he burned his plowing equipment to cook the meat and he gave it to the people and they ate. And then he set out to follow Elijah and he became his servant. You see, what he's doing here is he's essentially liquidating his assets. He is making it almost impossible to go back to that lifestyle. He's taking the plow, he's taking the oxen, and he's saying, I'm going to throw a huge feast. I'm going to move towards my family, mom and mom and dad. I'm going to kiss them in celebration, and then I'm going to invite the whole community to eat and feast while I create this huge bonfire with my plow. He's saying, I'm not going back. I'm leaving that life for a life in service to the mission of God, and I'm doing it joyfully. I can't wait to get started. What is that? This is the movement of God grabbing a hold of someone's life and trading in financial security and comfort and career for the dreams of God. It's a trade of the dream I'm dreaming, even, even the dream of a happy family, Elisha's saying, I surrender that. See, we think that what we want most, that's what Elisha already had. And he's saying, I've got it, and yet I'm, I want to I give it all away so that I can have what God has built me for, which is the mission of God. And so I want you to know that this is the paradox. I want to remind you this morning, this is the paradox of the heart that you were built for. And try as you may, nothing else will satisfy you except the glad surrender, the glad giving away of our lives to be on mission with Christ. Isn't this exactly what we see in the life of Christ? I love what Tim Keller says in his commentary of Hebrews 12, 1 and 2, and this is what we were singing about earlier. Keller says, uh, fix your eyes on, or Hebrews 12 says, fix your eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith who for the joy that was before him endured the cross. And here's what Keller says. The author of Hebrews is not suggesting the cross was a joy. It is saying because Jesus went into mission, he experienced tremendous joy and tremendous suffering. Now that's true across the board. If you live for the furtherance of your own interests, 
your social interests, your economic interests, your personal interests, if you live for your own comfort, your own needs, your own happiness, and your own freedom, what will you have? You'll have a very cozy little life. You will have very little way in the way of danger and suffering, but you will also have very little in the way of fullness of joy. But if you want a big life, if you want a full life, if you want to know that your life counts, that's what he's saying, if you want real living, get in the mission. It was true for Jesus, and it's true for everyone. Do we see the paradox here this morning? Now, here's the thing. I think most of us, we, we would say, I, I totally believe that. But the issue for us is this wrestling match that we go through where we'd say, I, I get it. Like a life of selfishness, there's no life there. But what about this life of burning the plows? That is terrifying. And so we try to settle in and find the cozy middle, the cozy life, where we can sort of have our cake and eat it too. And this passage is pushing in on us. Here we see Elisha burning the plow. We're afraid of constraints. Let me ask you this question. Do you like commitments? Do you like to make commitments when things um, are offered to you and you have to commit to it? Do you ever find yourself being like, ah, I'm just going to hold back. Let's see how things play out. Because what if I have a bad financial month? That's scary. What if my friends are doing something else? You know, uh, think about a commitment and what it would mean for you to, to be on a service project or to be a part of a missions trip. There's commitment in foster care ministry. There's a commitment when someone asks you to be in a discipleship group or a Bible study. Even me asking the youth to go lay pine straw on a hot Wednesday night, um, what, am, what are we surrendering? You see, any time that we move towards sacrifice and surrender and mission and commitment, what we feel is this tension of what if, what, what will I leave behind? What will I lose out on? And here is this sense of being stuck where we're afraid of being confined and not free. And Jesus is saying, look, the only way for you to get unstuck is to put your eyes on me, to fix your eyes on the cross, to see me with my joy surrendering for you. That's what will make you burn the plow. That's what will make you follow him. And so secondly, I want to show us the reality of the call. This passage reminds us that the call of God is not something that we just come up with on our own. It's not a choose-your-own-adventure story. Um, and so... In his book, Union with Christ, Rankin Wilburn has this chapter called A New Identity, Who Am I?, where he says that there are some really significant holes in sort of this cultural narrative that you should be the one that defines success and what your life is to look like and what will make you happiest. He says that unlimited freedom like that will often paralyze you because if you can do anything you want and it's up to you to choose, then you better get it right. So how many juniors and seniors in high school come unhinged a little bit at the question when somebody comes up to you and says, hey, what are you going to major in in college? What are you going to do with the rest of your life? There's this pressure to get it right. You got to know the answer to that. 
Not just college students, but how many in our 20s and 30s and 40s are still trying to figure out what we're going to be when we grow up? And so there's this greater anxiety that creates a sense of inadequacy. I'm supposed to know exactly what I'm going to do with my life, and if I don't figure it out, there's something wrong with me. Thankfully, there's something much better and substantive in God's Word that frees us from this age of anxiety, and it's that God's call on your life originates with Him and His character and His vision. I wonder if you noticed in verse 20 what Elisha says. He says to Elijah, would it be all right if I said goodbye to my parents first? And Elisha says, go ahead. Um, What have I done to you? What have I done to you? He's asking the question, why ask me that question? This call that you've received, it didn't originate with me. I I wouldn't have even picked you. I don't know why God picked you or what he's up to in your life. He's seen something. I'm just following through. And so Elijah is stepping back, and he's reminding Elisha, and by extension, you and I, that this call is much bigger, much better, and much more substantive than anything that this world could offer, and that that's actually quite liberating. But I want you to see that there's two aspects to this calling that play out in Elisha's life. The first call of God always goes like this. You are called to become something first, to be something. And then out of that calling, you will realize what he's calling you to do, that there's a call to do something. But the first one, to become something, always informs the latter. Now, both are important. The first one, to become something, is general and is the same for everybody in this room. We all have the same call to become something. And yet the call to do something is absolutely unique to everybody in this room. We all have our own passions and gifts. And so both are important to understand and embrace because on the one hand, it creates this great unity in the body of Christ. And then on the other hand, it creates a beautiful diversity where we all get to serve. And so here's phase one of Elisha's call. He becomes the servant of Elijah. Before Elisha takes over in 2 Kings, He serves as an apprentice for almost 20 years. Now, I want you to think about that. He served for 30 years after Elijah was taken up into glory, but before that, for almost 20 years, what was he doing? He was simply an apprentice. What did that look like? Well, in 2 Kings 3, we have this little throwaway line where these three kings are sort of talking about how they can prepare their armies, and what does God have for them? And so one of them says, is there a prophet anywhere around that we can ask for help and guidance? And one of them says, oh yeah, there's Elisha. Elisha was the one who used to, and this is what he says, pour water on Elijah's hands, and the word of God is now with him. Let's go ask him. So that's the way everybody thinks about what Elisha was up to. He was just pouring, he was washing his hands, You see what God is doing in Elisha's life is he's calling him to become something. He's calling him into servanthood, humble, mundane faithfulness, serving, quiet service, washing hands. He's a personal attendant. He's caring for the needs of another. And that's because God's first call on a person's life is always one of becoming, shaping your heart more and more into the likeness of Jesus. What God is doing in each of our lives before we ever figure out the specifics of calling is he wants to make you a person of love and wisdom and integrity and self-control and vulnerability and humility. 
We know for Romans 8, 28, and 29, it's one of our favorites. Listen to this. And we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him. That's the one we know. Who have been called according to his purpose. And what is that purpose? Verse 29, for those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, to become like Jesus. And so what is your calling? Why are you here? Why am I here? I am here to become like Jesus. Your goal, your calling is Christ-likeness. I want you to just think about that for a moment. Can you, can you get your mind around that every day and get excited and exhilarated and freed up by just simply saying, the call of God for me today is to grow more and more into the image of Christ. And I get to just simply hold on to that and see what he might do through his word and through his people. To me, that's incredibly freeing. It's far more freeing than trying to figure out where is my happiness and figure out my perfect career and exactly what I'm called to do. But calling number one is I am called to be, to be made more and more into the image of Jesus. How exhilarating, how clarifying to know, to get up every morning and to know that that's what your life is about. Ephesians 2.10 says it this way, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. The New Living Translation um, takes that word workmanship and says you're God's masterpiece because it comes from the Greek word poema, which is where we get the word poem. And so the picture is of an artist carefully laboring, working diligently to create something dynamic and beautiful. He's got this vision, but a lump of clay. He's got this vision, but a canvas, and he starts working and working. That's you. You're God's masterpiece. That's what he's up to in your life, to create more and more Christ-likeness, love and joy and peace and kindness and goodness. God, that's what I want. Lord, do that in me. This is what we sang earlier. Lord, with every breath, I long to follow Jesus. Did you sing that this morning? This is our calling. Well, how do we answer that call? The first one we've already mentioned, unconditionally. The same way that Elisha did, he burns the plows. There's no like trial, sign up for a month free and figure it out when it comes to serving in the kingdom of God. It's, it's bringing our life consistently to the, to the throne room and saying, God, I'm so tempted, even right now, to get back on the throne in my life, to settle for financial security and comfort and just to kind of fly below the radar here in this world, I want more. I want Christ's likeness in my life. So again, that's really easy to say. You might hear that and go, nice thought. I love that. I need to do that. But I just want to tell you that for me, what that looks like is I actually have to turn my cell phone off. I've got to go somewhere in my house or somewhere outside, and I've got to get on my face, like all the way down with my arms extended like this, or on my knees quietly, and I've actually got to do the exercise to say, Lord, I'm on the throne again. I want to be honest with you, and I want to surrender for your vision and your glory and your call and your kingdom. I, I have to. I have to have it. So work in me. Create new joy. 
Help me to give this to you. That's how we answer the call. And secondly, we participate like Elisha by becoming a servant of the word. Elisha didn't have a Bible. He had the prophet. The prophet was the one who brought God's word to the people. But you know what we have? We have something even better than Elijah. We have the complete word of God. And so all the authors who brought forth God's word, we get them all in our Bible. And what we're hearing and what we're seeing is that by becoming people of the word, this is the only way that we can discover purpose and meaning and who we're meant to be in our life. That's what brings power and clarity and how we know how this is going to play out through our gifts and passions and experiences. But that's the only way it happens. The only way that you begin to discover exactly what you're called to do is by starting with God in his word, becoming saturated with his word and learning to reflect Christ and represent Christ. You guys ever heard of Demario Davis? Demario Davis is an NFL linebacker for the New Orleans Saints. And uh, this last week, he, he, he's actually started the last eight seasons, Demario Davis has started every game except one. And that means he's pretty good NFL linebacker. And do you know that this past week, he was at the Summer Beach Project speaking to about 21 football players from West Georgia who are down there with Ben Weber and Nate Masters and Mike Mason. And here's what Demario Davis is telling them. He's telling them what he, when he was at Arkansas State as a freshman that God got a hold of his heart. And he decided that he wanted to go to the Summer Beach Project and grow in becoming a servant of God's Word, that God's Word would have mastery over his life, and that he would be all consumed with the calling of God and be in accountable relationships and grow. And his coach told him this, you can go to the Beach Project, but when you come back, you will not be a starter on this football team. Now, I want you to know that Arkansas State is in the Sun Belt Conference, and if you have dreams and aspirations of going to the NFL and being drafted, then you pretty much need to be a starter in the Sun Belt Conference. And so this was a crossroads moment for Demario Davis. It was like saying, what is my dream? And you know what he did? He burned the plow. He said, I'm giving up. I'm giving up. God, I don't know what you have for me, but I know that it has to start with your word and your people and your call on my life. And so whatever good things happen for me in my life, my family, whatever it is, football maybe, I've got to learn to trust you. So he burned the plow. And you know how the story turns out. And that's what he's celebrating this week with these football players. And that's what he's challenging them with. You think the dream is football. And I'm telling you the dream is Christ. The dream is Christ's mission. Unless we're willing to do the same, to find the plows in our own lives, to bring them to the Lord and surrender, I don't think we'll ever discover and embrace the greater joy in being called by God. Lastly, the power. Where do we get the power and the desire and the motivation to live like that? There's two places in this text, and you know, it always comes back to Jesus. And so I hope that you see in this series that everything that we're doing is pointing back to Jesus. Where do we see Jesus in this passage? It's in the cloak, and it's in the chariot of fire. So we're going to move through that quickly. What is this cloak all about? You remember what happens? Elisha comes in, or Elijah comes in and meets with Elisha. Elisha isn't looking for God's mission at all, but Elijah comes on the scene, and it says that he found him. This is how our entrance into the community of faith starts. 
God finds us. We're not seeking. We're not earning. We're not meriting. We're not doing anything to go find God. God comes to find us. It's unmerited acceptance and favor. And so when this cloak goes on him, it's this picture of acceptance and intimate relationship. Remember what Elisha, the servant, cries out. He says, not master, master, teacher, teacher, but he looks at Elijah and he says, father, father. Because for the cloak to go around him meant intimate relationship. It's this call to enjoy God's love and affection and delight. That's what the call of God is rooted in. And so Isaiah 61.10, listen to the psalmist, or listen to Isaiah's prayer. I delight greatly in the Lord. My soul rejoices in my God. Why is he so delighted? For he has clothed me with garments of salvation and arrayed me in a robe of his righteousness. You know what... uh, that cloak represented was the, the righteousness of Jesus. We, we have something far better than Elijah's cloak. We actually have the righteousness of Christ. And so I want you to think about when God calls you into mission, how do we show up? What are we wearing? We're wearing rags, filthy rags of indifference, rags of half-heartedness, We show up and we're like, I don't know, Lord, if I really want to be here. I don't know if I want to do this. I don't want to commit to anything. Are you, can you ask somebody else? These are the robes that we bring to the call of God. And here God takes the filthy rags and he exchanges it for the rags of Christ's righteousness, perfect obedience, perfect submission, glad surrender. God is taking the robes of Christ and he's putting them on us. And so there's this acceptance that we now get. There's this joy of being able to uh, approach God and say, God, can I have the double portion of your spirit? Did you notice what Elisha asks? Elijah says, hey, ask me for anything before I leave. And what does Elisha ask for? He says, can I have a double portion of your spirit? So a double portion was simply a way of saying, of indicating, it was kind of code to say, the same rights and privileges and inheritance that the person who's firstborn in the family would get, they get a double portion. Everybody else gets a single portion, but the firstborn son gets a double portion. I want to be thought of like that, just like you, Elijah. I want the double portion of God's spirit. I want to be like the firstborn. And you know what Romans 8.29 says? It says that you've been called according to his purposes, to be conformed into the image of Christ, who became the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. You see what Jesus is inviting us into? It's to be the firstborn with him, to share in his inheritance, to share in his glory. And so when Elisha looks up and he sees the chariot of glory and and Elijah going up into it, it's this picture that we have of Christ ascending It's the power of his resurrection, the power of his ascension, and what comes down for him is a cloak, but what comes down for us is the Spirit of God. And Elisha's saying, I want the double portion. Do you know what you have? You have the cloak of acceptance, the robes of Christ's righteousness. In the gospel, you get the power, too, the power of his Spirit leading you out. This is the hope. This is what gives us the ability. I want you to look at one last thing. Verse 14 says, he took the cloak that had fallen from Elijah. He struck the water with it. And he said, where now is the Lord, the God of Elijah? He asked when he struck the water. 
And then it divided to the right and to the left, and he crossed over. Just think about that picture. Um, And think about the audience here. The audience here that this is being written to is a group of people who are in exile in Babylon, and they are wondering, will we ever see the God of Moses show up again to deliver? Will God ever rescue us? Will He ever show up and give us victory again? Where are you, Lord? And I want you to just think about how does that question play out in your own life right now? Where are you, Lord? When marriage feels hard and discouraging, when you read the newspaper headlines, you think about the culture around us, and you think, we're just a remnant. It feels like we're, we're, we're losing ground every single week. Where are you, Lord? Will you show up? Will you deliver? Are you at work anymore? And here's the picture that God gives to the people in exile. He reminds them that the Spirit of God is always on the move, that He's still with them because Elijah takes this cloak and he divides the water to the right and left just like Moses and he moves across it. This is them hearing, I will never abandon you, I will never leave you, I will never forsake you, I love you and I'm with you. Do you understand that that's what we most need to be reminded of this morning? That if you are going to be empowered and you're going to have joy and you're going to gladly surrender and move out and take risks and make commitments with your life, that what you need most is to remember that God himself has done it for you, that he's he's active and alive and on the move in the world around us. Even at a summer beach project with 21 football players pressing in on their heart idols. Maybe he's doing that to us this morning. Let's pray as we close our time together. <clears throat> well, Father, this is what Paul prays, that, um, that we would know the hope to which he's called us, the riches of his glorious inheritance as his holy people, and to know the incomparably great power that's available for us who believe, the same power that he exerted when he raised Christ from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion. And God, we get to be your church. We get to experience that same power. And so I pray, Lord God, that you would flood our minds and our hearts and our spirit with the power of God in Christ Jesus. The same power that resurrected Christ from the grave has the power to resurrect the places in my heart that are attached to dead idols. Oh God, I come and I surrender because I sense the call is much greater, much more beautiful, and much more hopeful. And so would we as a church move towards the glad surrender even right now because of the hope and the power and the call of Jesus Christ. And we pray in your name. Amen.